Hey, Lurid listeners! It is so good to be back. I hope all of you sexy people are doing well. Oh my gosh, there's so much to tell you. First, let's start with audiobooks. Hypnotized, the audiobook, is now available in Audible. It was one of my most popular KMQ episodes with something like 60,000 downloads, if I remember. And it's finally out as an audiobook. So go check it out. Also, I just narrated the super popular story, Werewolf Menage, Pack Justice, written by the talented Michelle Fox. It's an uber sexy BDSM menage werewolf story, and it's killing it right now in the Kindle store. Head on over to Audible, Amazon, or iTunes and search Rose Caraway. Your purchases go directly to supporting the show. So please, if you need more KMQ or Sexy Librarian coming at you, this is how we get there. Also, I've got another of my books in production right now. It's called Tool, and it stars the KMQ's favorite porn star, Eddie the Auger Harley. I'm really quite proud of this book. It might be my most favorite thing I've written so far. On top of all that, there are some other amazing developments happening behind the scenes as well, and I'm totally bursting to tell you all about it, but for now, I'm going to keep it on the DL. But trust me, it's really good stuff. As I'm sure you've noticed, this show doesn't produce quite as many episodes as some of the other erotica podcasts. And I probably get two to three emails, Facebook messages, or Twitter messages every day begging me to please make more. I want y'all to know I hear you. I really, really do. And if it was up to me, I'd have one episode per week. These shows are a true labor of love, and we at Stupid Fish Productions love doing this. Between the writing, editing, recording, and production behind each episode, it literally requires hundreds of hours of work. And it's our opinion that quality, not quantity, is what really counts. We strive to make every episode the best that it can be. So thank you for your patience. All that being said, I've decided that because the pleads for more have been so great, I'm going to try something new starting with this episode. The goal is to give you additional content on every show. Things like snippets from audiobooks I'm working on or that someone else is working on that I like. Even blogs or interviews, anything I think you'll find interesting, entertaining, or just plain old sexy and fun. So to kick this episode off, thanks to a little help from my friends at Cleese Press, and my dear, dear friend, Lucy Malone, I'm adding some bonus sexiness at the end of my story. So keep your earbuds in after Outland 1313 is over. You guys are in for a huge treat. This episode is the first part of my two-part sci-fi erotic adventure. It's fast-paced and a bit different than previous episodes, but it's something I'm very proud of. I really like this one a lot, and I hope you do too. Outland 1313, Part 1 
1313 was considered an immature yet inhabitable planet. Its surface, comprised of dense tropical rainforests, jagged, porous igneous rock shelves, and deep channel lava rivers that flowed from behemoth-sized volcanoes from the northern hemisphere in a helter-skelter web that could be seen from orbit. Tucked inside a second Goldilocks zone called the Third Helping, Outland 1313 was a planetary contradiction and a prize that inspired new colonists to seek its dynamic Eden-like landscape. The Earth Alliance sent ships out to survey, with hopes of calling the newly discovered planet home. But humans weren't the only ones searching for a new residence. A newly discovered alien race and vile enemy to humans had already begun to secretly inhabit Outland 1313. With the Alliance's trade and travel routes passing directly by the planet, humans quickly became easy targets and a steady food supply. A stringent steam rose from a nearby lava flow with popping fizzes and loud hisses as tropical rains showered the landscape. Betty tilted her face skyward and let the warm rain wash the sweat and grime from her travel-worn skin. It was treacherous work climbing over the ever-changing terrain during these rainstorms, but the chemical steam stung the eyes and burned the sensitive noses of the bloodhounds so severely that they couldn't catch Betty's scent whenever she approached their settlement. It was her only advantage against the creatures. The bloodhounds, named for their canine-like appearance and characteristics, were a sapient race of pirates that stood, on average, two feet taller than humans and were heavy with incredibly strong muscle that made the mightiest of men look pathetic. Their hulking size, however, made them susceptible to debilitating exhaustion, and within the jungles, their massive bodies constantly worked against them. So they built their compound away from the densely treed areas, onto the easily negotiable flatter lands. The rains fell in hard torrents until the clouds emptied, leaving just the steam hissing and rising from the lava rivers, obscuring Betty's vision. She needed the caustic vapors to cover her scent, so she trekked cautiously. One careless slip and the scent of her blood would be in the air, bringing the hounds on her heels before she got inside their compound. Betty tied a frayed cloth over her nose and mouth, and then rechecked that the food satchel was still tied to her belt. As she hiked through the low, noxious clouds that billowed around her small frame, her thoughts drifted. Today, she counted 103. 103 days that she'd been stranded on this beautiful, treacherous prison. She'd recalled her ship, the Scout, under siege, the info panels flashing red warning readouts. To her surprise, scanners had detected that Outland 1313 was already inhabited, and according to the infrared, the planet was inhabited by bloodhounds.
Betty's crew was long dead now, and she assumed Minda was too, but she didn't know for sure. She'd read the reports about the feeding frenzies, but the Alliance's interpretations inadequately described what the sounds of tearing flesh, the crunching of bones, and the snapping of tendons were actually like. Betty and Minda had watched the crew being devoured within minutes. If it hadn't been for Minda's panicked screams and flailing legs, the hound's blaster wouldn't have gone off and melted Betty's shackles, and she'd have met the same fate as Minda. Betty shivered at the memory of her co-pilot's body being stripped of its clothing, and then being plugged in, her flesh eaten away, and the jolting realization of just how much the bloodhounds thoroughly enjoyed it. When the water vapors cleared, the perimeter wall surrounding the bloodhound's compound became visible. Betty's boots were worn to the soles now, but over the last 103 days, the muscles in her thighs and calves were fine-tuned, allowing her a steady, silent approach. She hunkered down at the wall's edge. After a slow count to five, she lifted her head just enough to take a quick survey of the encampment below. The perimeter wall was built of loose volcanic rock, stacked 40 feet high all around the Bloodhound's base. The only way for her to get in was to climb down. The heavy volume of rain had hammered the ground with so much noise that she hadn't heard the engines of an Alliance mining ship that rested at the encampment's loading dock. Her breath suddenly caught in her throat. The sight of it tempted Betty's carefully curbed nerves. Mining ships designed for freight, not speed, were easy pickings for the hounds. She'd seen this scenario before. She still couldn't get used to it. Her heart ached as she watched three hounds drag six miners, one in each hand, from the wide belly of the ship. Bastards, Betty said through closed teeth. A fourth hound emerged next, holding a large fluffy brown dog by the scruff of its neck. She watched, helpless and furious, as the humans were doled out like dog treats amongst the hound's highest-ranking officers with organized barks and grunts. Their fate, Betty already knew. With a keen eye, she double-checked to be sure she was at least right about one thing. All six humans were men. Thank God for small favors. She felt the familiar pangs of the loss of Minda. Beneath the old rag tied over her mouth, Betty's lower lip trembled, but she swallowed that hard knot of defeat down. A noise from the mining ship caught her attention just as the garbles and growls of the feeding frenzy began. Betty turned away to avoid the carnage and caught the blur of a man, hurling himself from the ship down the loading ramp. Her heart lurched into her throat as she watched his valiant attempt come closer to success than anyone she'd watched before. 
The man ran towards the perimeter wall as if the devil himself was on his heels. Come on! Betty's excitement was hardly containable as she saw him put more distance between himself and the distracted hounds. But as soon as he reached the wall and began clambering up, the hunt was on. With a lump in her throat, Betty counted ten hounds closing in on the man as he struggled up the rock wall. She watched him slip and slide. To her relief, the man finally gained a sturdy purchase and pulled himself upwards despite the precariously built structure. Experience taught Betty that in space, when aboard their fast-maneuvering ships, the hounds proved to be quick and concise aggressors, but on land, when it came to a foot pursuit, their efforts were rather torpid, especially when it came to chasing down just a single person. Out of the ten hounds at the base of the wall, only two were actually yanking boulders down. Every hound was armed, yet not one used a weapon to shoot the escapee. Experience had also taught Betty that the hounds weren't very bright either. The man's distance from them was widening, and it took the snarling bark of a feeding superior to send the reluctant subordinates up the wall after the scrambling man. Betty backed away from the small outcropping with her heart thumping in her ears. She was a pragmatic woman who usually saw things for what they were, without letting emotion cloud her judgment. But what she saw gave her something she hadn't had in a long time. Hope. The man had a real shot of surviving. If he made it over the wall, she could lead him to safety. Then Betty's own chances of surviving would be doubled. A deliciously viable escape plan began to form while she watched, unbelieving yet hopeful as the escaping man reached the top of the wall. 103 days is too long. I am not going to lose you, too. You better run your ass off. The man's endurance was admirable, and she smiled when he suddenly changed his course and headed straight towards her. Betty's heart raced. Despite the hound's threats of drooling, lip-smacking growls, the man raced on following the edge of the wall. Betty knew the hounds would tire eventually and quickly planned her course. She hugged the edge of the wall and circled around, and as soon as she heard the man's heavy, fast-moving footsteps, she called out, Over here! This way! They needed to haul ass to one of Betty's many hideouts. The big oxygen-guzzling muscles of the hounds would begin to tire faster if she led them over the steeper terrain. She sent up a silent prayer that the man running beside her could keep up. Miners, like their ships, weren't normally built for speed. So far she'd noted that the man's footsteps were nimble enough, and that was a good sign. They ran hard, sucking in the warm chemical air still lingering around the lava flows. The acidic smells were noxious, and the man soon began coughing. Betty turned left, up and over the older cooled lava shelf, away from the stifling air, and the man breathed easier. The volcano they climbed was steep with two levels. 
The left side had erupted after Betty first escaped, and now it served as a perfect, hound-defying cliff with a drop, she estimated, to be hundreds of feet straight down. Another silent prayer went up as she hoped the man could jump. The left side hadn't shown signs of life since she'd been there, but the right half of the once double-barreled volcano burped regularly. As they neared the dormant left tier, the land suddenly shook when the right half belched, opening another wide crack that emitted toxic gases. Betty could hear the pursuing hounds' frustrated growls as they too struggled up the loose terrain through the poisoned air. We have to hurry! Move! Betty called desperately. The brawny man was showing signs of fatigue, unlike Betty, who hadn't begun to tire yet, and she grew impatient when she saw the hounds closing in. She gripped the man's hand, trying to pull him with her. See that ridge? She shouted over the volcanic rumbling. The man nodded, grunting as his body worked to keep moving. Betty saw his strain. We're so close. Don't give up on me now. He seemed to respond to her encouragement and gripped her hand harder. Betty afforded herself a glance down the volcano's slope and saw a hound, younger than the rest, pulling ahead of the pack. Oh, God damn it! She cursed, trying to pull the stalwart man faster, but his enormous size compared to her tiny, lithe frame made it an impossible feat. Panic itched at her heels. Then she felt the whisper of a tug at the end of her long braid, but then it was gone. She didn't dare look back. Suddenly, an angry yawp came from the man when his body pitched backward, and then both he and the young hound were in a furious tussle in the muddy ash while sliding back down the volcano. Betty, armed for 103 days with nothing but sticks and stones, picked up the heaviest rock she dared. The man was on his back, and the hound snapped its jaws dangerously close to his throat, ready to take a bite. They had stopped sliding. Betty loped down the steep volcano towards them. Push him up! Hold him up off of you! Rocks crumbled further down the slope as the rest of the pack was making headway towards them. Betty stilled her breath, held her arm back, and launched the stone at the young hound. Its sharp edge thwacked hard against the beast's temple, and the man kicked its heavy body off with a powerful thrust, sending it back down the volcano. Like a bowling ball, the hound knocked several of its comrades down along the way. Get up! Betty urged, and then sprinted back up towards the cliff. The man caught up to her after several exhausted strides. The side of his cheek was scraped, but other than that, he looked fine. Tired, but fine. At the ridge, Betty stopped and looked back. You can do this, okay? The man scanned the depth of the chasm Betty wanted him to jump over with an iffy stare. You've jumped this? he asked between breaths. Betty smiled. Every time it rains... The man checked behind them. It's this or them, she said. He smiled back. 
I'll pick this any day. Betty felt her heart flutter. Her focus suddenly became challenged. But the sounds of the rumbling ground and angry snarls coming up the volcano were motivating. She stepped back from the edge, focused on the other side of the chasm, and with a running leap, her worn boots kicked off the edge. Her body flew through the air, her arms outstretched, her legs tucked, until the other side neared. Betty shoulder-rolled onto the other side in a clean, swift motion, then got to her feet. She looked up just in time to see the man, arms and legs flailing in the air. His body was lower, his distance shorter. His heavy body came crashing down just at the edge of the other side. His fingers clawed at the mud and his face was red with strain. He was a mere foot from falling to his death. Betty lunged for both his hands and dug her heels into the soft, wet ash. His weight was heavy, but it only pulled her heels through the mud a couple of inches. The mud that coated her hands added grip as she tugged him away from the cliff's deep, unforgiving edge. He watched, dumbfounded, with agonizing need. Betty's ethereal-like beauty had Travis suffering as he watched her dainty body submerge beneath the water's smooth surface. In the six days that he'd been under attack, neither he nor his crew had taken their Alliance-prescribed inhibitors. And the sight of Betty in her smooth, golden flesh made the cold turkey method a tormenting cycle twisting physical lust to dizzy, manic yearning, and he couldn't turn it off. He knew that she knew, and his fists couldn't be clenched any tighter in miserable shame. While Betty was submerged, Travis considered jerking off, but he wasn't sure he could do it fast enough. Besides, the cave was small. She would see him. The escape had provided a brief distraction. The running away had especially helped. But as soon as Betty resurfaced, a heavy moan escaped his mouth, and the swollen, persistent pulsing knocked inside his groin, fast becoming undeniable. The water that slid over her heavy, round breasts fell like sparkling waterfalls, and it was too much to bear. Travis turned away in pain. One had to be weaned off the inhibitors, slowly, so as to avoid the sudden shock of sexual arousal. Both men and women suffered alike if they came off inhibitors too fast. Their libidos came back with a vengeance. A reminder that mankind wasn't meant to be starved of its most basic function. You should wash too, she indicated Travis's head wound. Our sweat and your blood are still in the air, and eventually it will drive the hounds to fly over here, if they haven't already, Betty said as she toweled off. We must leave here soon. 
Her unusually long blonde hair was unbraided and hung in long wet ribbons along her naked body, and Travis hunched his shoulders. It took all his strength just to speak. Okay, was the best he could do. Then he stiffly removed his mining uniform, ignoring the fact that Betty would see his obvious ailment. He decided he would just jerk off in the water. He waded in with lots of splashes and quick breaths as the cold water hit his skin. Immediately, his right hand enclosed his cock and he began stroking. He tried to pretend that he wasn't, but his need was too consuming. So he sunk beneath the water until he sat at the very bottom. He stroked, holding his breath until relief came. I had the same problem when I first got here, too. Betty tried to soothe Travis, but her words just made his cock throb more, and he struggled to put the clean uniform on that she offered. He was turned on and angry that she hadn't gotten hers on yet. Instead, she stood before him, still wrapped in her towel. What? He couldn't think. The inhibitors. When I escaped, I had the same problem. He zipped the jumper all the way up to his cheek with such speed that the zipper's teeth caught the skin on his chest before he could stop. Ow! Fuck! Travis was a miner, and his mother always said no woman would marry a man with a miner's mouth. Betty's slender fingers pulled the zipper tab down, and she inspected his wound. You can't draw blood around here. They smell it too quickly. She dabbed the chewed skin with the edge of her towel. When her wide, blue eyes looked up at him, Travis couldn't breathe. Her left breast was exposed. He thought he heard an animal whine, but realized it was him. I need you, she said. I need your strength and your mind. I've been here for 103 days and... Her voice hitched. Travis felt empathy penetrate his lust, but only a little, because Betty stepped closer and I can't have this get in my way. She slipped her hand inside his jumper and wrapped her small, cool fingers around his cock. Travis jumped, but gripped her slender shoulders. He wouldn't allow her to let go, even if she wanted him to. He didn't think he could. Help me? It was a statement and request, both. He meant to say thank you for helping him escape, but his cock spoke for him. When her towel dropped to the cave floor, Travis's jaw clenched tight. He unzipped his jumper the rest of the way down. A moment of indecision swept through his brain. How was she going to help him? Suck his cock? Let him fuck her? Let him fuck her beautiful deep cleavage? The thoughts slammed into his brain so fast he felt dizzy, and he closed his eyes against it. He heard the whimpering animal again. If you help me, she said, Travis would agree to do anything for her. He would will himself to die right there on the spot if she would just let him relieve himself inside her, let him fuck her. I'll do anything, he insisted, 
then lifted her body into the air and pressed her against the cave wall. He kissed Betty with mad desire, embedded himself inside her pussy, and then seesawed inside it until he came. I'm sorry, I... But Travis couldn't finish his sentence. The flesh around his cock compressed, and when he felt Betty's breath against his cheek, his hips moved, his cock dove in for more. Her breasts spilled over his selfish hands, her lips swelled against his suctioning kisses. Travis's lament of desperation reverberated throughout the cave as he cried out and came again. And still, he held her pinned against the cave wall. Hey, Lurid listeners, thanks for sticking around. This next bit features someone I really love and look up to, my friend, the amazing, sexy, scorching, super talented narrator, and all-around wonderful person, Lucy Malone. Lucy is reading an excerpt from the audiobook Orgasmic by Rachel Kramer Bussell. This excerpt comes from the short story Frosting First by Lana Fox, and is presented by Cleese Press. And now, Frosting First, narrated by the delicious Lucy Malone. Frosting First by Lana Fox Well, put it this way. What's sexier than dinner with guests, discussing wine, books, or the state of the nation, while the hottest man you've ever met kneels beneath the table, biting the straps of your garter belt? Or, take it one step further, his tongue's right inside you, dipping in and out, circling sublimely, And there you are, gripping the arms of your chair, pursing your lips to stop yourself from moaning. You begin to shudder. His hands are on your thighs, as your head falls back and your eyelids flutter. You can't keep from gasping as he finds the perfect rhythm, and you're close, so close, to losing it completely. Are you all right? Asks your neighbor, fondling her pearls. You're rather flushed. I'll get you some water. Please, you say. She rises from her seat. You've turned quite a color, says her husband from the other end of the long oak table. I'm sure. You part your knees farther, arching as you come. Sweet Jesus, you moan, your hands beneath the table, grabbing handfuls of your lover's hair. Truth is, this all started with frosting, a birthday cake for your flatmate, Rose, She was in the living room chatting with her sister as you mixed the topping for a naked lemon bunt. Your man was with you, a new lover then, and he kept dunking his fingers in the bowl, then looking at the frosting. 
you slapped his wrist. When you dipped your own index finger in and then ran it down his chin and sucked, like a porn star at the sugary trail, he pressed a whole hand in the bowl of glaze and, with the other, raised your shirt. See, you'd been taunting him all morning about your braless breasts, nipples hard beneath your clingy shirt, and as he pushed you back and peeled the whole thing off, you glanced toward the living room. The sound of Rose's voice through the open door, snippy as usual, slyly turned you on. What if they come in? You asked. He raised an eyebrow. Well? Rose is kind of uptight. Maybe we'll loosen her up. You told him you were wet. He flashed a sexy grin. I'll make you wetter. You glanced back at your nipple, erect in the sunlight, and when he raised his hand from the bowl, palm and fingers gleaming, and plastered the glaze against your breast, you couldn't look away. Your breath ran quick at the cold white layer, and the way your nipple, glossy now, was slick with sticky sugar. Lick it off, you whispered, as you arched against the worktop, offering your breast to his parted lips. But though he glanced hungrily, he wouldn't give in, not until the whole of you was frosted. You can picture it now. You see yourself undressing, then climbing on the table, waiting on all fours with the sunlight on your back, the bowls at your side, and the scent rises up in a sweet, powdered cloud. He walks around you, staring at your flesh, his cock growing hard, a mound in his jeans. I'll smother you, he says, gaze burning, like a, like a meringue. You don't frost meringues. He crosses the room and returns with a knife that's rounded at the tip and a wooden spatula he places in the bowl. I'll frost what I like, he says. The knife sparkles in the sunlight. He leans on the table, raising your chin with the blade. You're gonna be my project. Your mouth waters. I'll fill you with cream. Yes, chef. He scoops up some of the glaze on his knife, then holds it up so you can lick along the blade. You do so, knowing how he loves it when you use your mouth. As the lemon icing tingles, tart on your tongue, he gives a jerky sigh, raises his jaw, and you let the frosting dribble from your lips so it slowly trails your throat. From there, it runs across your breast and he watches its path with a breathy moan. The way his lip seems to snarl at the corner says this won't be tame. I'll make a cupcake of your pussy, he tells you. In the next room, you can hear Rose disapproving of her sister's miniskirt. So you wink at your man and ask him how much cupcake he can handle. But his finger's in the bowl, and next thing you know, he's holding it towards you. Swallow he tells you. You suckle his fingertip, lips rubbing round the joint, as your tongue flicks the sweet sharp sugar from his nail. Then, with your free hand, you reach between his thighs, pressing his heart on. He drops his head back, half shuts his eyes. So dirty, he groans, pushing against you as you massage his perfect length. You long to unzip him, take him in your mouth. Then again, you also want him in control. You let him go, moving back to position, doggy style, on all fours on the table. And though he lurches after you, still wanting your touch, his eyes soon return to your naked flesh. He begins to ice you, knife dipping in the mix and dragging oh so slowly down your spine. The wet steel makes you shudder. 
he pauses at your tailbone and dips the blade again. As he works your flesh, frosting you completely, he lingers at each sensitive spot. Where your sex meets your inner thigh, he pauses like an expert. With just another inch, he'd be frosting your pussy, and you are desperate for a touch of that dripping steel. So horny, in fact, that your mouth drops open and you swallow, your forearm shaking the table. When he slides the blade down the edge of your sex, you shift your clit toward it, just another inch, you think, before the blunt steel is sliding, wet, exactly where you need it, and the burn in you that's building so hard can be rubbed to a frenzy. And yet, he pulls away. Be a good puppy, he whispers. He strips off his t-shirt. Flip over now. Yet again, you find you're drooling. It isn't long before he's with you on the table, both hands covered in a fresh load of glaze, as you lie on your back waiting. You can smell the lemony frosting running down his wrists. He licks his thumb, eyes set on yours, then kneels up above you. Cupping your jaw with the dripping hand, he touches your breast with the other, and with an index finger, circles your nipple. Christ, he whispers, look how hard they are. You tell him, touch them, but he idly circles. I love it when they're wet, he says in a whisper. And suddenly you're so desperate to have him touch you there that you grab his hand and splay it on your chest, arching and rubbing your breast against his palm. For a moment, it's exquisite. He gives a little snarl, and you notice him staring at his hand, while you can feel the wetness filling your sex and the tingles of pleasure where you rub your breast against him. Then suddenly he's ducking down, using his tongue, licking the frosting from your aching nipple, and with the mess on his mouth and you, slick with saliva, you reach toward your clit. Oh, you ache to stroke it, if only for a second, your moisture's dripping down your thigh. But no, he grabs your arm. Aren't we being dirty? Of course we are, you say. And that's when you know you'll be spanked. When you were just a girl and your father grew fiercer, he argued nonstop with your mom about your diet. She'll get fat, Val, he'd say. You give her too much sugar. She doesn't eat badly, mom would snap. Besides, she's skinny, look. You'd sit on the couch between them as they bickered ramming chocolate brownies into your mouth, or licking the buttercream from freshly frosted muffins, enjoying the feeling of it smearing down your chin. Sometimes, your father would notice you there. This, he'd say, is exactly what I'm saying. You should see yourself, Jesse, it's disgusting. Rather than spanking you, he'd send you to your room, and in spite of the disappointment, you'd feel a strange heat, a sweet, slow, creeping thing you'd yet to understand. It isn't surprising that this flashes through your head while you lie on your back on the table, as your man rubs your sex with the slippery glaze, and you hear someone moaning, and realize that it's you. He parts your thighs, tells you you're gorgeous. The glaze slithers into you, and then his tongue. Dipping right in, he finds the spot easily, flicking against you and spreading that glaze, which trickles, cool, mingling with your wetness, so you arch right back slam your fists, cry his name. You're in such heaven that you roll your head, and in a flash, you see your flatmate's sister. She's leaning against the doorframe, pigtails, 
a flouncy skirt, only 21. Her fingers hover at her lip, a new darkness fills her gaze. That mouth, you note, is deliciously wide. Eyes glossing your body, she reaches under her skirt, and as you roll and sigh, begins to touch herself. Your man's fingers creep up your freshly creamed body, your skin tingling as his fingertips rub your slicked breasts. Suddenly, you know how you must look to your voyeur as she writhes against the doorframe, head slamming back, pleated skirt lifted round her thighs, fingers working quickly underneath. This is why you tell your man, come on me, now. He glances up. His expression says you're filthy. I'm bad, you whisper. Nearby, the girl groans. Soon, you're bent right over, feet on the floor, hands on the table, your wetness and the frosting sliding down your flesh. And behind you, your man with the icing-covered spatula waits, erect and ready to teach you to be good. The scent is all animal, edged with sugar. At the doorway, the girl gives little gasps. You keep still, awaiting your man's swift punishment. The girl's eyelids flutter. She arches, hand busy. Now then, says your man, we have an audience. Then he pulls back the spatula, gleaming with glaze, and thwacks it hard against your cheeks. The smacking sound is perfect. You give a little cry. He thwacks the tool again, over and over, so your body jolts hard, and the table shunts across the linoleum floor. Your torso's pulled with it. You're stretched from feet to ribs, yet he keeps on smacking you. And oh, the pleasure. The drying glaze, which clasps against your skin, when slapped with that wet spatula makes your flesh burn. Come into me, you beg him. You're aching for his cock, but he keeps on spanking, the tool held tight. When at last he drops the spatula, it skids across the floor toward the girl's feet. She watches you, with your hips thrown out, chin streaked with drool. Your man throws you across the sticky table and enters you quite suddenly, filling you entirely. Your jaw goes slack and you cry and laugh. With his hand splayed in the small of your back and the drying frosting pinching your nipples, he thrusts, hips jolting against your ass. His cock ramming into you is slippery with frosting, and you still can't believe how perfectly you fit. He groans and grabs your thighs, fucking with such force that the table starts to shift across the room. You shift with it, and he lunges after, thrusting harder, grabbing your hair. He makes a rope of it, twisting your head back, and you see him there, beautiful, teeth biting at his lip, his glare ferocious as he slams again and again, building all that burn in you, that sweet hot clench. As the girl's gasps rise higher, she parts her knees, rising up on the tips of her toes, a look of almost pain in her flickering eyes, and then you feel it, rising like flame, so you spread yourself wide for him, crying for him to do this, and it comes, in a thunder, rips through your body, and the world blurs around you, and you're high. He's thrusting so hard, moaning so loud, moving with such brilliance that he simply keeps you there, clinging to that feeling as the cries sound around you, and the whole damn room is gone. You collapse. He starts laughing, falls against your back, he whispers at your ear, I think we're in trouble. For there, behind the blushing girl, is Rose, your flatmate, 
her hands on her hips, a sneer on her mouth. She glares from her sister, who snorts and giggles, to your man and then to you, sucking at her teeth. I, I don't know what to say, she blurts. Really, it's revolting. You give an empty shrug. Your man follows with a wave and says, hey, happy birthday, Rose. And you slap his wrist. You'll recall it took you months to win Rose back, to persuade her you hadn't meant to invade, but you never did get her to join in. What a shame. She might have liked it. So anyway, back to when he's underneath that long oak table, while your guests flap about offering you water, and Christ, good Christ, you let those other waters flow. And in that instant, you cry his name. It's a shock. He bumps his head. The wife crouches down, raises the tablecloth. Why, hello there, neighbor, you hear him say. You laugh out loud at his timing, his wit. Later, in bed, you'll ask your man if these activities are wrong. You know what they say about delayed gratification? Maybe we should wait for sex, allow it to build. To this, your man will push back your hair, a saucy look of pleasure on his face. We're bad, he says. Accept it. We like our frosting first. For Stupid Fish Productions, this is Rose Carraway. I'd like to thank the following musical artists. Sun Searcher, Chris Zabriskie, The Meaner, Culprit, Grapes, Flex Vector, and the feature credit song, Journey to the Moon, by DJ Code. A special thanks to Jan Morgenstern, whose music did most of the heavy lifting on this episode. Thanks to Cleese Press for bringing us Frosting First. I'd also like to thank the author, Lana Fox. She can be found at lanafox.com. Last but absolutely not least, I'd like to send out my love and respect to my friend, Lucy Malone. She is amazing. You guys need to check her out. Her sultry voice can be found in Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Just type Lucy Malone in the search bar. And while you're in Audible, Amazon, or iTunes, go ahead and throw Rose Caraway in the search bar, too. If you liked what you heard and want more, please, please, please subscribe, rate, and leave a sexy little comment in iTunes. This show has been hanging out in the top 10 in iTunes, and that is directly because of you guys. Please keep it up. I've got more sexy fun stuff available to check out on Facebook and Twitter every day. Things like interviews, blogs I've written, pictures, and more. Not to mention just some good old conversation. Again, just type my name in the search bar. I'll be there. Check out the info section on this episode. I've got all my contact addresses listed there. And of course, there's always email. Thekissmequicks at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening and supporting the Kiss Me Quicks podcast. See you soon. Journey to the moon.
stupid fish. Never before. <laughs> I think of the WWE guy. What was his name? Uh, uh, Thunderlips in the flesh. Hulk Hogan in the Rocky movie. <laughs> in the flesh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was funny. You don't remember that? I I wanted to be in the ring with him. Screw holding the number card. I want to be in there and Oh, full Nelson, half Nelson. I don't care. Who's doing the Nelsoning? Oh. Well, he would have to be. And then I could do a reach around real quick. <laughs> It was a handful. You remember his underwear he wore? 